This is the Mouths of the South podcast. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me. The official Dirty South Soccer podcast. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Talking all things Atlanta United FC. Don't nobody understand the words that are coming out of your mouth, man. We are the Mouths of the South. The South got something to say. That's all I got to say. What's up, everybody? Sam Franco here with a very special edition of the Mouths of the South podcast. Right here on DirtySouthSoccer.com. And this season, the 2020 MLS season is upon us. And we are sponsored by Lucid FC. Lucid FC, a distinctively modern clothing line based right here in the ATL, reflects a deeply British-American heritage design approach, promotes freedom of fashion, gender, and role. The iconic logo is immediately recognizable. It's like a hashtag that's been turned over. Uh, You see us wearing it sometimes. I've got a sweet hat. Eric's got some great merch there as well. They also, besides hats, they have sweatshirts, shirts, hoodies, trousers, as they even call them. You know, that's that whole British-American heritage approach. Uh, Lucid FC, the FC stands for footwear and clothing. It's a perfect match for fans of football clubs. You know, football club, FC, footwear and clothing, it all works out. So take a look at lucidfc.us and see why celebrities love this line. Uh, the season's current line focuses on the theme, what's your effing club? The, that F could stand for a bunch of different things. Football, fashion, film. So what is your F? You can go online at lucidfc.us. You can also find Lucid FC at select retailers like Urban Outfitters, Wish, and Epitome. So again, many thanks to Lucid FC for helping us out. And you can get free shipping at lucidfc.us with M-O-T-S as your code at checkout. Once again, M-O-T-S is the code you can use at checkout to get free shipping. And Miles Robinson, also affiliated and has a partnership. So that means that players, your favorite players, are actually wearing Lucid FC. So be sure to check them out. And Lucid FC, we thank them. We also thank Jason Smith. That's right, host emeritus jason smith is joining me this week as eric is on the mend he had a little knee surgery and josh at this point we don't know i don't know what josh is doing uh he's off gallivanting around or you know trolling some of you guys on twitter i don't know but anyway very happy to welcome jason smith back as a mouths of the south uh host for this week jason it's been a while man how have things been it has. It's it's been a good life for the emeritus. I'm just you know teaching here in Mississippi, uh, tweeting a lot, watching the occasional soccer match. You know it's been good. Um, miss you guys. Miss talking to y'all randomly and uh, you know whatever me and me and Eric used to cook up on the podcast. I do I do miss it. You trying to keep things on the rails. You know it was a, it was a fun dynamic. <laughs> Definitely so. And uh, yeah, we uh, appreciate you for joining us this week. And first and foremost, you know, we'll, we'll get into a bunch of different stuff. We'll, we'll talk about the, the match against Motagua from earlier this week as Atlanta United. Uh, apparently, the sky isn't falling, uh, despite what <laughs> many of be. the fans uh, might tell you. Uh, and uh, I think even you <clears throat> were a little bit uh, in the what is Frank DeBoer doing camp. We'll, we'll get to all that in a little bit. But one of your old hometowns, Nashville SC, that is Atlanta United's first opponent 
and it'll be at Nashville's first game. How is this affecting you? You know, you used to live in Nashville. You're from, you know, Georgia. So uh, there's probably some some tugging at your heartstrings a little bit. I mean, a bit. Um, I don't have – and it, it's a lot, actually a lot simpler than I thought it would be. I thought coming into this that I would really have some conflict, especially if we were still in Nashville, um, between, you know, rooting for both of them. At this point, I have basically zero conflict in my heart about this. Like, I hope we destroy them and they, you know, I don't I don't have any animosity towards them. Um, but, but my family's time in Nashville right towards the end became less of a love affair with the city and more like someone please get us on a helicopter to get out of here. Um, <laughs> because, you know, like I believe like 300,000 people are moving there a day or something. Ridic- that's obviously false. But, you know, something like that, it feels like. You know, it take it feels like it's becoming Atlanta traffic and you're like, this is not what I signed up for. Uh, and so I am I, I don't have nearly as much dual loyalty as you might expect that I have. Um, and then I'm actually really glad for the second reason is that, like, had I had dual loyalty, I would be really mad about the way this team was taking shape. And I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. I can just be with the cool Atlanta team, even though, you know, I got my problems there sometimes, too. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll dive kind of further into Nashville a a little later on in the episode and and what that game means and kind of what Nashville's uh, birth, so to speak, has been like, because it's definitely been a lot different from what Atlanta United's has been. You know, Atlanta United had Mercedes-Benz Stadium in the works uh, already uh, before Atlanta United was even announced. And then it was just kind of like, oh, by the way, here's the stadium. Everything's already taken care of which is way more than some teams can say. Uh, Nashville has had some problems in that regard in terms of getting their uh, stadium funding set up. Uh, Inter-Miami is like worth a whole podcast of just talking about <laughs> yeah. the problems that they've had. And, They're in a swamp also, somewhere in an undisclosed location. Exactly. You know? Yeah, an old arsenic dump or whatever they were talking about. <laughs> and, and then you've obviously got uh, teams, even established teams in the league, like NYCFC, who haven't been able to figure this out yet. So uh, Atlanta was a little lucky in that regard. But before we kind of dive in, th- th- this is basically how this episode's going to go. Jason and I are going to run down the Motagua tie and what's coming up next for Atlanta United in the CONCACAF Champions League with Club America, a team that Atlanta United's already beaten for a trophy. So it's not even like we have to worry about that tie coming up. We're playing in the 100,000-seat Azteca Stadium uh, that's basically uh, closer to the sun than anywhere on the planet Earth because of how high the elevation is in Mexico City. But we'll get to that. Chill. Pretty chill. Exactly. Absolutely. Chill. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure that you know Atlanta fans will just be able to to walk around the city uh, in Mexico City fully free and mm. and, and not be bothered by anyone. Uh, but again, uh, we'll get to that in a minute, <clears throat> and uh, we'll uh, kind of get some thoughts from Jason on the off season as a whole. The, these are things that Eric, I, and uh, Josh have been talking about uh, for basically the entirety of the offseason, but I did want to get your thoughts on kind of how things have unfurled with, with players leaving and things like that. But we'll start off with Motagua as Atlanta United uh, with an easy win over at Kennesaw. Uh, the hashtag was spreading like wildfire. Action yeah, at the man. fraction. Action and uh, that's right. As uh, Atlanta United uh, took care of business uh, pretty easily, two goals from Pitti Martinez, a goal from Joseph Martinez, and that was after the tie down in Honduras, where the teams tied one-one. Uh, so Joseph Martinez, over the course of the two ties, scored two goals, and uh, Pitti Martinez uh, had two goals as well. And this is kind of what I was talking about with the whole 
um, the sky is falling type thing because it seemed to me, and I got on Twitter and kind of vented a little bit about this the other day. It's like for the past few weeks and, and, and almost months leading up to the season here, everybody's been so quick to bash Frank DeBoer for all of these moves that the team has made. It seems like Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra, who are the ones that are kind of in charge of putting the squad together, aren't really getting any of that vitriol. And it seems like Frank is an easy scapegoat. But it's almost like scapegoat's the wrong word because nothing's going wrong. Like Atlanta United won trophies last year under Frank DeBoer. Yes, they were eliminated unceremoniously by Toronto FC in the Eastern Conference Finals. But still, I mean, Atlanta United, um, for all things considered, I mean, year one under Frank DeBoer has to be deemed a success, um, despite the fact they didn't win MLS Cup or repeat as champions. But they still got the um, uh, they still got the U.S. Open Cup. You know, they still got the Campiones Cup in beating Club America, a team that they're going to face very soon here. So I, I, it just to me seemed very much like a lot of people were just upset because, you know, Atlanta United were, were selling fan favorites. And that's fine because, look, I'm a fan too. So you see a guy like Julian Gressel go. You see a guy like um, uh, LGP go. You know, these guys that, that were very much integral parts of Atlanta United's early successes. And, you know, there, there's some ways to say that Atlanta United looked cheap for not, you know, wanting to, to sign these players back. But unfortunately, more so than probably any other league you're dealing with, you're going to see casualties in terms of your favorite players a lot more in MLS. And when I say casualties, meaning that they'll, they'll be either cut, traded or whatever, just because players outgrow the value of their contracts and Atlanta United for as important as a guy like Julian Gressel was, they couldn't have afforded $700,000 for him. That's just the reality of the situation. So I, I think overall that Frank DeBoer has, has undergone a lot of unfair criticism for things that sometimes weren't his fault. And then other times, you know, he's trying to make this team into what he feels will be a long-term success and sometimes there are bumps in the road along the way with that. So it's it's funny because everybody was all doom and gloom. The sky is falling at first. And after the 3-0 win over Matagua, everybody's like, oh, yeah, things are going great. Look at what Frank did. He's adjusted and all this stuff. And I'm just sitting here like, time out. Two, like a week ago, y'all wanted this guy gone. I mean, I, well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, like oh. I said, there was a lot going on. No, it's like that's like that. I'm saying, let me say a couple of things that I was thinking about last night. The first thing that I think, well, first thing that should be said is that I think there are like various degrees to which people were mad at Frank DeBoer last season mm-hmm. um, about various stuff. So there are the people who thought, you know, tactically he's a, he's an idiot and this total football thing doesn't actually exist. And like Tata was way better than he is. And like, despite the fact that we have all the same players, we suck. Um, I, you know, we obviously didn't suck, but like we were a game away from winning the MLS Cup and winning the MLS Cup probably. But, you know, I digress. Uh, I, so there was like that take. And then there are people who are like, I just think uh, Frank DeBoer is ruining everything and has it out for like all the players who spoke out in the media and, you know, is just a grump and wants to like dismantle this club that we love. I, I think- fully admit what that I was like kind of one of those guys that when I started to see the the fan favorite players you know be moved out lgp i think was the first one that i was like lgp was pretty vocally like anti frank DeBoer, like at the mls mm-hmm. all-star game last year and 
Eric is one to really quickly bring like a fire extinguisher to this take. But it, it, I think there is something there to at least say that I, I don't think Frank DeBoer gets rid of, uh, you know, LGP just out of spite for speaking out against him. But it's certainly one of those things where it's like that's not shouldn't be completely discounted as a reason. It's like Frank DeBoer's like, OK, LGP, I appreciate you as a player, but you're also a guy who's spoken out against me before. And if we can make things a little more smooth in the locker room and maybe have more guys in more important roles that aren't, you know, quote unquote, Tata guys and didn't see what it was like before Frank got there, then, you know, that's probably a little bit of an added bonus for him. Yeah, I, I think the the whole like dismissing them, I'm mostly trying to make that into more of a caricature, you know, like that take of like the people who just kind of like go, don't just say as you did, like, this might have had a bit to do with it, but the people that go like entirely insane and think Frank, Frank DeBoer was like settling all the family business during the offseason. He's, he's just getting rid of these players because he doesn't right. like it. Yeah, yeah, that I that I don't that anti Frank DeBoer take is a bit off the rails. And I think right. I, you know, I thought I started out of, in the beginning of the Frank DeBoer season feeling like. He was being buoyed a good bit by just the sheer quality of players that Atlanta United had on the roster. And I didn't see anything. In fact, it seemed like all too often they were struggling to like it, it. Either he didn't know what he wanted them to do or they were struggling to do what he was telling them to do because it was so counterintuitive to how the team was built. Um, and I will just tell you, if if I have an anti Frank DeBoer bone in my body at this point, because his results have proven that like some of that was wrong. Like he's not just a he's not just a buffoon. He he knows what he's doing. Um, if there is a place that I feel worry about Frank DeBoer, it's actually more in the long term vision of of what he takes this club to be, um, of like what type of players and personnel he wants to bring in. And and to be honest with you, I don't know how much of a say he has in that. Like. It's it's tough to to look at this list and say this is the team trying to shape the team towards Frank DeBoer's tactics because as Josh will remind you a whole lot they're not that dissimilar to what Tata Martino tried to do. They're really um, not. I mean, there's there some fundamental differences, but ultimately, right. I mean, and, and you know, here's a hot take for you. Ultimately, Atlanta United wants to score goals and score yes. more goals than the other team. Right. They want to hold. They want to hold possession most of the time. They want to kill you in transition. They want to score a lot of goals. Like that's what we want to do. Um, to the extent that Frank DeBoer and Tata Martino both rely on that a good bit in their tactical philosophies, then like it's not that that different. Um, which to me says like okay. You know, those list of players that are gone, maybe you think that you can get a, you know, a person that is that replaces that level of talent for less money. And if that's what you do, then as a general manager or like, you know, team president, like you go for it. That's a great move by you. Um, I like my mostly my concern mostly was like of during those times of saying, all right, some of these decisions based on that philosophy, I'm not sure I entirely understand. You know, like I, the Gressel one still bugs me the most just because I don't know one because, and Frank didn't have any say in him going to DC United. I think that's a silly decision on behalf of Darren and Carlos. Um, But I think that bit piece in particular, like I don't, maybe I'm just misevaluating what Gressel is about as a player, like what his skill set is. I just think in a system where you needed somebody to play like a, a sort of defensive plus be able to get forward and attack and create. Uh, the space on the outside that lets like Barco and PT tuck in a little bit and play under Joseph. Like 
I, I struggle to see who was better at that in MLS, honestly, like he was one of the top three in MLS. Like I just, it really bugs me letting that kind of talent go over a salary mm-hmm. dispute. Um, and you know, the numbers are the numbers. So maybe I'm wrong there, but that was kind of my, my beef. My, the only beef I have remaining with him, cause he seems to have really figured it out is okay. Is your long-term like vision for the side, you know, players wise, um, you know, is it actually going to make sense, especially given the fact that, like, I, I wondered last season if you could have gone out and gotten a coach more similar to Tata Martino, who would have been able to get the most out of that side, rather than what Frank tried to do, which is still a bit flummoxing of, like, trying to get them to be more defensive-minded from the outset, when that never struck me as what that team was good at. And so that leads me, like, a little bit of question about him as, like, a manager and, like, how he views his job of, like, if you struggle to evaluate what these guys are good at in the moment, I worry about you being able to do that in the long term. Now, Frank benefits from the fact that like it's not that hard to be good in MLS. Like it's just not. And Atlanta ding, still ding, has ding. <laughs> Atlanta still has such a superior front office that like doesn't make too terrible of decisions, I don't think. Um, that he will be buoyed by that no matter what. And I think that is an answer to like some of the people who are like, Well, he blew it at Crystal Palace or he didn't do it very well at, you know, I forget, but he was in Syria somewhere. Inter Milan, that's right. So, you know, he blew it there too. Like, we, you know, what we're so worried about him, just his quality as a coach. He conned people into making him think he's a tactical genius, but in reality, he's just like a Barcelona star who just got a coaching job. I, I think all that might be true, but I think he's going to be buoyed by the fact that it's not that hard to be good in MLS and the teams that are coming in now, and especially in the East, there's not a lot of ambitious teams. You know, like they're like teams just aren't trying to do anything other than fleece their supporters out of money. And I mean, you know, I mean, look, no, you're, I'm looking, you're and the, I'm looking at Orlando. There. Like, if if it was if if there were some sort of dynamic where like all things were equal and we were really creating parity in the league, like the Revs and Orlando City would have found their car keys by now. But they haven't, and they haven't because they don't care to. They care to keep getting the money they get and just continue to buy crummy players. And I don't know what else you say about it. Like, it's just. MLS right now, the the biggest problem they have to solve in the future is how to get teams like Orlando and this, these perennial bottom feeders to care beyond just what their bottom line is at, at the gate. And if you can't figure out how to do that, then like a coach like Frank DeBoer, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe he is like this tactical genius and you're really going to see it play out well this year. But in reality, regardless of what he actually is, he is going to be buoyed by an incredible roster and the fact that the rest of MLS just doesn't really give a crap about being good. And here's where I'll bring it back to Matagua a little bit. And here's why I think that Frank deserves more credit than a lot of fans are wants to give him. Because you look at last season, and, and this kind of speaks to Julian Gressel. It's like what Frank DeBoer wants to do versus what he had to do last season because of the personnel on this team not really fitting what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you look at Atlanta United, for example, against Matagua, and they came out with a three-man, essentially a three-man back line, despite the fact that Miles Robinson is out. And so you're like, with Miles Robinson being out, you'd almost assume they're going to have to play four at the back. They didn't. And you know what? They were fine. (laughs) Because uh, I think that these players have started more and more to understand what Frank wants. And you look at a guy like Meza, who was brought in as a like-for-like direct replacement for LGP, and he just seems to be a guy that might fit a little more in terms of being able to to play the role that Frank wants him to play. So, 
you know, I, I think that you, you, when you look at this Motagua match and the fact that Atlanta United, and, and granted, Motagua isn't uh, the stiffest of competition, but you still look at Atlanta United and great teams, you know what they don't have to do? They don't have to adapt their tactics week in and week out based on their opponent. They do what they're good at because they know that you can't stop it. And yeah. that is what I really enjoyed out of this Motagua match uh, at Kennesaw was the fact that Atlanta United imposed their will on the game and and didn't change anything that they wanted to do based on the opponent. So I think that you look at what Frank DeBoer's first season was and, and even a fit like Julian Gressel, it's like in, in the system that they want to employ, you know, in, use now, whether you call it a 3-5-2 or a, what, a 3-2-3-1-2, three, three, I think, <laughs> or, you know, whatever you want to call it. My math might have been a little off there. Apologies. <coughs> but still, it's like in that setup, especially like a 3-5-2 where you've got three a three-man back line with the, the two holding midfielders and then, you know, some guys pushed up the field. Where does Julian Gressel fit into that? Because, yeah, you know, yeah. he's not he, – he was playing that wingback role so well. But if Frank DeBoer is playing the system and playing the style that he wants to play, that's not a role that's on the field. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you saw last, you know, uh, on Tuesday night, I think he would have been where Brooks Lennon was. Like, that's mm-hmm. where he plays. Right. Um and I, you know, I think he, I think he's fine in that role. Like, I think he, I, like, here's my thing. Part of the reason it's frustrating is that I'm like, I don't think Brooks Lennon is a like for like replacement for Julian Gressel in terms of his skill set, you know. And and I, that's where I struggle being like, you know, I, I, to me it was just it, it is entirely the price tag, obviously. And like, you know, we can we can whine and moan about it all we want to, but like at the end of the day, that's what it came down to. Um, and so I, you know, I, I I guess I can't really hold it against Frank. I'll tell you the one thing too. Going back to just the overall match in last season, um, I think one underrated aspect of this that's going to come out of like evaluating DeBoer last season that is going to come to be a lot more prominent this season is I don't think we really understood how detrimental how detrimental it was to what Frank wanted to do that PT Martinez just had the yips all season like. PT last night finally firing pretty much 100%. Um, you know, he had to shoot the ball like 10 times before he could find the I was going to say, but, he, but he had the he yips there, at first. For like the first <laughs> yeah. 20 minutes of the game, he had the yips. And almost like, I think everybody, because I've seen a few different people and I've talked to a few different people that were like, yeah, I had some tweets ready to go. like Because he, he, he put one right over the bar about, I think, a minute or two before he scored. Yeah. And it's like... It's like, okay, how many chances does he have to get? And people are there, you know, their tweets ready to go. And then he scores and you're immediately hitting delete or immediately, you know, getting <laughs> right. rid of that. Because, yeah, but, I mean, yeah, he's he's a guy who seems like sometimes he just needs a lot of shots to get into the yeah. game. And allow me to praise Frank a bit here. If if Frank's tactic going into this game was like to look at Petey Martinez and say, shoot every dadgum time yeah. you get the ball. Yeah. It, to, so we just get this out of your system, right? If that was his tactic, then I, I take my hat off to him because no, it is clear watching that, you know, after those first 20 minutes and even during them, all the chances were kind of flowing through PT at the time. Um, it seems clear to me that that whatever Frank wants to do uh, and I don't you know, I'm not a tactical genius to be able to tell you what that is. Josh and, and Tanner have a much better take on that. No, no, um, we got a segment coming up. Tell, uh, tell Frank what to do, starring. Yeah, Jason. there we go. There you go. I, I just, I think that it has become clear that whatever he wants to do with this team, it's going to have to run through PD Martinez. 
Um, and last season, him just struggling to adjust or get his feet on it, whatever you want to call it. Um, that seems to have very much colored our evaluation of DeBoer. Whereas I think this season, you know, if PT finally fires off the way we think he can, uh, you know, especially in transition, this team's going to be a sight to behold. Yeah, and I think, you know, Ezekiel Barco is going to take over a lot of what Darlington Nagby was asked to do. It's yeah, funny that, because he, that seems yeah, true, and I'm very surprised that's true. Yeah, I know, but th- that's what it seems like early on because I think everybody, when Nagby, uh, you know, w- was traded to Columbus, I think everybody was just assuming Emerson Hindman was going to do, you know, that was going to be Emerson Hindman's role, was going to be to kind of sit there and, and kind of control the midfield. But based just based on, on the Matagua uh, tie from, from Kennesaw State, it seems like that. Barco's dropping back further than we were used to seeing him do, and that's allowing Pitti to kind of have a little bit more space up top, or at least uh, closer to the attack. And that is what could lead to a beautiful partnership between Pitti Martinez and Joseph Martinez. Like, if those two can build that chemistry that Julian Gressel and Joseph Martinez had, and, and it could be even even stronger just because of their you know their Latin American backgrounds. But like, if, if you're able to build that chemistry with those two guys playing off of each other the way they did against Motagua, then I feel sorry for 99.9% of MLS back lines this year because they, they, there might be one or two in the entire league that could do a good enough job to curtail what those two can do if they find that chemistry. Yeah, and I think that now, and I'm, you know, I'm sure DeBoer knows this, it's like, the priority for this side has to be to like tighten up to get its transitions as tight, its attacking transitions as tight as humanly possible. Um, because it seems like, regardless of what the injury situation is on, you know, off the pitch, in the middle of the match, what strikes me is Atlanta's best scoring opportunity is not necessarily holding the ball for forever and then giving it to Julian Gressel down the sides, and he just like destroys somebody and creates a perfect cross that like you know a back line doesn't get to. It strikes me that the way this Atlanta United team looked looked most effective, at least against Motagua, is there those moments of like, you know, PD gets the ball, turns, passes to, you know, passes to Joseph, he lays it off, PD sets Joseph up, Joseph scores. You know, much more centrally based as opposed to attacking exactly. the wings, yeah. which is what Atlanta right. United has done pretty much since they started. Yeah, right. So you don't have any more like a Miguel Almonron bombing up sort of like, you know, the channel almost and challenge and getting right in between a fullback and a center back and daring them to, to commit. Now you have guys just saying, we're just going to stunt on your main defenders. Like that's that's mm-hmm. our job. Um, you're going to give the ball away at a certain point And like we are tight enough with our touch, with our passes, with our layoffs that we're going to like we're going to have scored before you figure out where we are. Yeah, and I think that's what ultimately the main difference is between like the attacking under Frank DeBoer and the attacking under Tata Martino. With Tata Martino, it was much more of a transition slash counterattacking style where you utilized Miguel Almiron in that fashion that you just explained. And you look at what Frank DeBoer wants to do, it's much more possession based. It's much more let's play it through the midfield. And pass, not not pass you to death, but you know, let, let's let's keep the ball on the ground. Let's let's move it, uh, you know, move it in triangles. Uh, as you hear a lot of coaches, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, talk about. But it's, it's a lot D- more. Dare I, dare I say he wants to score some goals that are uh, 
Arsene Wenger-esque a little oh, bit, you know? Wait, like, you're walking into the net. I yeah. know, I know I'm walking into it. We both hate that team. But I'm just saying, like, that is that to me is, the, it's not tiki-taka, right? Like, we're not trying to oh. do that. We're not being pep. But it strikes me, he wa- like, if there's anything frustrating about, about Frank, and also maybe potentially great, because if we can do it, it'll be wonderful. Um, you know, the team goals this team is going to score are going to be wonderful. Uh, you just have to make sure that you don't, in the same way that, that Wenger did, commit to just like, we're going to play beautiful football no matter what, even if we lose all the time doing it. Now, Frank's biggest test is coming up. Uh, you know, I, I look, I, I get it that MLS, yes, he his biggest test up to this point was probably that semifinal against Toronto uh, mm-hmm. that he failed. Because people would say, well, what about when he beat, you know, they beat Club America in Mercedes-Benz Stadium for the Campeones Cup? Yeah, it's all well and good. But I still think that meant way more for Atlanta United than it did for Club America. But Atlanta United beating Club America for that trophy is like smelling salts for Club Mm. America. Because now that they have an opportunity to have a two-legged tie against Atlanta United in the CONCACAF Champions League, which is a much more meaningful tournament than the Campeones Cup was. It's not even a tournament, just a game. But still, this is going to be like, like it's not one of those things where Atlanta United is going to be able to like catch Club America napping. No, no, no. Atlanta United beat Club America for a trophy, and they are probably still pretty pissed off about it. Like just in terms of like the um, the media backlash they had to deal with down in Mexico City after losing to Atlanta United and mm. becoming the first Mexican side to lose a trophy game to an MLS side. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that was that they took a beating. Like if you followed the the media uh, in the you know the the Hispanic media covering Club America, yeah, that was not a pretty um, aftermath for them. So y- you're definitely facing your toughest test yet as Atlanta United manager in trying to advance uh, out of uh, the next round of the Concacaf Champions League by by beating Club America. You know the the quintessential La Liga or um, excuse me the quintessential Liga MX side. You know, this, this is one of the most successful, in fact, I'll just go ahead and say it, the most successful CONCACAF club team in existence. I mean, just, just, just based on their history. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be tough for Frank DeBoer, especially because it's not like Atlanta United can sneak up on them. You know, it's no, a yeah. case where Atlanta United are going to get every bit of attention that Club America has. And Atlanta United are going to have to go get some sort of result down in Estadio Azteca, which is one of the most difficult places to play for opposing teams anywhere. Yeah, I, I think that you're exactly right that this, I mean, if you're the manager of Club America, you got to be telling them, like, this is our revenge tie. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 I forgot, I forgot it's Herrera. Oh, I love that guy. Okay. Um, <laughs> I love GIFs of that guy. I don't know if I love oh, him yeah. personally. GIFs he, of him are great. He's the best, he's the best GIF coach probably in all of soccer right now. Might be. That's a, that's a really good title. or him. It's one of those two. I don't know. I mean, Pep yelling twice and then yelling twice to the heavens when uh, <laughs> when against Liverpool the other the other week. was I mean, Maybe it was against Spurs. I can't remember who that was against, but that's a wonderful GIF. Um. I mean, if anybody's going to catch Club America sleeping, it was, and I'm going to butcher this name, Comunicaciones. Did I get that right? Yeah, you're close. Close enough. Okay, yeah, close enough. So that team uh, nearly caught them sleeping. Um, probably should have if they don't get a, a pretty you know, terrible, dumb red card uh, in the second half. Uh, you know, Club America clearly slept through that. But I think that the, you know, <laughs> games like this are always the ones where, I, where you just sit there and watch it, assuming that it's going to go the way we think it's going to go, which would be an America, I think, an America win um, mm-hmm. over Atlanta. 
Uh, I know that some folks on Twitter from Dirty South Soccer are saying that they look beatable. I think they just look beatable this one time, but they're not going to be beatable the time we play them. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think we're going to watch this game and go, this, the only reason we're losing this game or the reason this game's not competitive, again, it's like, the as you say, the most successful CONCACAF side on earth. Like, you know, we, it's one of those, you, if you lose, you can't make this too big of a deal because they're just good. But you have to watch it as an MLS fan and go, this is why the salary cap is holding this league back. That, like, you would think a team like Atlanta, eventually a team like Inter-Miami, um, surely an LAFC or an LA Galaxy, if there were no cap and no designated player rule and, like, we could just go by whoever we wanted, you would surely think this game would be more competitive than it is. In fact, the fact that it's as competitive as it is, as it will be, hopefully, just kind of, like, tells you that the threshold is there to surpass Liga MX if you if you really want to do it. You just have to, like, give some of these owners and ownership groups that want to go out and make this league, like, one of the best in the world, the freedom to do it. That's going to mean screwing over teams that don't care. Right. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day— Looking like, at you, Robert Kraft. <laughs> yeah, like, but if Robert Kraft can't, you know, can't get the team to be decent when, like, literally every rule in the rule book is helping him do it, then I don't think he has any interest in, like, being anything other than a bottom feeder anyway. So just yeah, let them have what they want, uh, yeah. you know? I 100% agree with you on that. And I'll also say this, that I don't even necessarily think, and I, th- I think we've heard different players and coaches kind of allude to this or even downright say it. I don't necessarily think it's about even the, the, the top-level players because Joseph Martinez, he'd be a top-five player in Liga yeah. MX right now. 100%. Like, like it's not about the top-level guy. It's the depth. The yeah. Mexican sides, your Club Americas, your Monterrey's, they have so much more depth than an Atlanta United or an NYCFC, or any of these teams. And that is where they constantly beat the MLS squads when they come head-to-head. It's the fact that they're deeper. It's the fact that they can bring players off of the bench that would easily be starting for MLS clubs. And it's just tough. So I think if Atlanta United are going to get a result in the ties against Club America or get results, it's going to be because, and this is why I said this is Frank DeBoer's biggest challenge, he's going to have to drum up just a brilliant tactical game plan over those two games in order to, I think, get past this. Because I agree with you. I think the the team that had a chance to catch Club America napping didn't do it. Communicaciones yeah. didn't uh, take advantage of a, a clear chance that they had. And especially because of the Campiones Cup, this Club America team is going to be champing at the bit to get Atlanta United. Yeah. And, 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 and try to, you know, make uh, make right some wrongs that, I mean, they're, you got to go back if you can and look, because the, the media that cover Club America were downright embarrassed that Atlanta mm. United beat. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was not a pretty sight. So I think yeah. that Club America definitely is a team that uh, is, is going to be ready for Atlanta United. And if yeah. Atlanta United can get past them, then I think a lot of fans are going to have a lot of crow to eat uh, when it comes yeah. to uh, the board because I, I will take all of my Frank the board takes back if he beats America. If he beats America, hey. I'll retract it. I'll I'll wear my I'll get a Frank de Boer <laughs> jersey or something. I don't know. I'll I'll take it all back. I should never have been mean to you. Um, <laughs> but I mean I I think that they're gonna like try to make it hurt though you know and I think Atlanta that fans should be fun. prepared for that by the way like if they come to the fraction which by the way we should talk about the fact that we're playing at the fraction which is terrible. Um, so that really, game needs. To- Sadie's been stadium for a number of reasons, but I yeah. will say that it might be a benefit to Atlanta United to not play it at Mercedes-Benz Stadium Maybe. because if they did, it, 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 and, I, and I don't say this to knock Atlanta United fans, 
it's it would be a midweek game, you know, one of these things that isn't a part of your season ticket package. Very strong possibility there is at least there would be at least a 50-50 split yeah. Club America fans to Atlanta United fans in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I mean, especially if they opened up the whole thing, because they could. If they did open up the whole thing, Club America fans would buy out the entire upper deck. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, because look, Atlanta, it, I mean, they look, Club America fans would go to Seattle or they go to wherever. Like, they travel. This is like their, you know, this biggest, this biggest club in North America, right? But like... It's, it's especially easy to get to. Uh, it's especially easy to get to Atlanta. We got a big airport, as you've heard. So huge um, population in Atlanta, anyway. Oh yeah, that's right. Yep, that's right. I can see it. it's it's always so counterintuitive. I think, and this is another dynamic MLS has to group has to get at is that like it's always counterintuitive to think of Liga MX as everywhere, but in North America, it really is everywhere. And if you're not prepared to deal with that dynamic, it like it can come up and surprise you in games like these. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So it's going to be tough for Atlanta United, no doubt about it. But I look forward to it because I think that if Atlanta United is going to take that step, you know, what Arthur Blank talks about, you know, wanting to be an international club. uh, Well, in order to do that, you got to be the first MLS team to get to the Club World Cup. None of them. Yeah. And that's another, you know, notch on the belt for Atlanta United. If they can get that, can you imagine the hatred from like Red Bulls fans or LA Galaxy fans? <laughs> if Atlanta United becomes the first team uh, from MLS to get to the Club World Cup. I mean, and that that's when you have an opportunity to play competitive, meaningful fixtures against, you know, teams that are the best teams in the world, including whoever wins the UEFA Champions League. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, and then that is what you ultimately want. So I think that. It's going to be tough, but I'm not necessarily like you were saying. There are some some dirty South soccer writers that are like, I think this Club America team can be had. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I also worry that yeah, that that Atlanta United beating Club America for the Campeones Cup uh, just sort of uh, ignited the fire here. So we'll see what happens, but it's going to be very very interesting. And and speaking of interesting, you know, this entire offseason for Atlanta United has been very interesting and and, and sort of building up into this game where they're taking on Nashville. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, the, the whole kind of the sky is falling mentality of a lot of fans. And I certainly agree that it's rough to see players, you know, uh, like Julian Gressel, like Darlington Nagby, like LGP, like Tito Vigel. But yeah, I mean, these are very, uh, you know, fan favorite type, more so than that. I mean, your initial memories of Atlanta United can, you know, that they feature these guys, you know, whether it's Tito Vijalba's screamer down in Orlando uh, or or his goal that sent Atlanta United to the, the, the basically, you know, secured the win, the, the third goal against uh, the Red Bulls that allowed for Atlanta United to, to get to MLS Cup. So, you know, I, I th- there's definitely that there. And I think that as fans, like, it's so tough because, you know, and, and this is where I think you and I, have a unique perspective, you know, as, as heavy into college sports as we are. MLS, in terms of the attachment to your players, is much more like college sports. Because, look, in college, you know, at most you're going to have a guy for four years. Mm. Um, and then, you know, he's going to move on. Uh, so for Atlanta United, that's kind of what Gressel, Tito, and, uh, you know, LGP all just did. They they left after their junior season, so to speak. So, um it's rough when when the difference, though, is that the club is selling them. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely tumultuous at times. But ultimately, as a fan, you know, you got to you got to worry about the name on the front of the jersey much more so than the back. And, and 
at least the way that the Motagua, you know, fixtures went down, you know, I think Atlanta United have a very, very strong chance to to get back to right where they've been and 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 make a deep run and possibly, you know, another run at an MLS Cup. Yeah, and I, I think I think the college sports, you know, I know we've gotten we got in trouble about that in the past of like you know making a college football reference, but I think it makes sense in this context. I think that it also has other layers that make sense too. Like in some ways, some of these guys, part of the reason that this hurts a little bit more is some of these guys didn't graduate; they transferred. You know, like Darlington Nagby clearly didn't graduate his senior season. He just really wanted to be back closer to home. So he took that one to sit down and transferred, right? Like for me, more than anyone losing Darlington Nagby is the, the most important piece they lost. Yeah. And uh, I know really, that it really people is. Say, people will say Gressel, people will say LGP. That's the fandom in you. But from an analytical slash soccer slash, you know, whatever you want to call it perspective, Darlington Nagby, a hundred percent is the toughest player to replace. Yeah, I think I think that's I mean, I I don't know of any argument that could say otherwise. I think I think Gressel is tough because maybe you could say Gressel goes pro early and that's what he's doing because like you he just he needed to be paid more money and we wouldn't do it. The thing I think that street with Joseph and Gressel is going to be the hardest thing to replicate. But again, we we've sort of seen Pitti and Joseph having a, a little bit of a uh, some chemistry budding uh, early on in this season, or at least from what we've seen so far. So, yeah, I, I would agree. Gressel just seems more than anything that you've got to find someone that's as in tune with Joseph as he was. Yeah, and I you know, I think it's possible because now you, you do seem to have two guys on either side. of. Like, I know Miram came on for us at a certain point last season, but I think that you do seem to have in Mulraney and Lennon um, some guys that are starting to look like they both could develop a bit of chemistry with the guys that will be in the box for their service. So that's encouraging. I, I think like the LGP, LGP one, I kind of was like, you know, I love the guy. Like, I love the dude. But he, we haven't seen what Meza will be in this regard. But LGP was prone to do a couple of things. He was prone I'm to go on. Leroy Jenkins. He was Leroy Jenkins. He was prone to go on a <laughs> Hobbit adventure every now and then, you know, like Bilbo Baggins being like, I'm going on an adventure. <laughs> he was prone to that a little bit, which was fun, by the way, because if you're playing somebody terrible, you know, like it didn't matter. And you were you love to see like I was like, go the whole way, man, just walk it in um, that. And then whenever LGP ended up in one on one situations where he's running back and Parky is kind of like not going to be able to get back there to help him out. <laughs> yeah. You usually were making sort of like calculations in your brain of this is either going to be an absolutely incredible tackle. Or LGP is about to just like shank this guy one time and like. Oh, we're about to be ten of... men. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're about to be down to ten men. Like that's this is the calculation. I don't know if that's going to be the same calculation with Meza, and you know it's not with Miles Robinson, which is why he's great, and I hope he gets back, gets healthy soon. Um, I just I think that 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 is one thing where to me my love for LGP is just like this sort of like cosmic force of chaos. I, I can see why, from a front office perspective, he is sellable, especially if he became a bit of a problem in the locker room or something. Like, it makes sense to say, we could probably upgrade at this position, even though they love this guy. Um, and Tito Vialba, I don't really know. It's, that, that strikes me as like, a, I went pro early because I thought I could get paid more. I, I, don't, I know Tito probably didn't have a whole lot of say in it, but it does strike me of like, Tito has the salary and like can't be made a super sub, so he's got to go somewhere else. Um, and like well, he's I'll, already I'll, scored a few for Libertad. I mean, it just doesn't seem like the fit was there. And quite frankly, I've said this many times on, on this podcast in, in different ways, shapes, or form, but that first impression that Tito Vijalba gave or that, that Frank DeBoer had of Tito Vijalba was never changed. I mean, yeah. Frank thought that he was a poor player in tight spaces, 
that wouldn't be able to play in his system. And despite getting some chances later on last season, it, it, it for one way, and, and this is where I think maybe the stubbornness of a Frank DeBoer can, can be seen more so than in other areas. But yeah, it, it just never felt, and, and this is where I'll be critical of Frank. He didn't give Tito Vijalba a fair shake. And, and yeah. I, I will never believe he gave Tito a fair shake. And you know what? So be it. It's just one of those things that sucks, but it is what it is. I mean, the, the thing you got to kind of ask yourself is, can Tito Vijalba play wingback? Because if he can't, I don't yeah. see any place for him in the team, you know? And, like, he definitely can't play wingback. Like, that's not a thing he can do. No, 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 no. It's never going to work. Never going to work. So, unfortunately, that's kind of what that was. But Now, I'll say this. Let, yeah, let's, let's, let's do one, one thing that we have to say is that the underrated dynamic at this point is that given that – all of these situations we just described, to me at least, are foreseeable. These are not things that you all of a sudden wake up and go like, oh, man, we got to sell like all four of these guys. Like you knew what Gressel's contract situation was. You knew that you're, that Frank wasn't happy with Tito. LGP was probably replaceable. That, that one maybe is different. You knew forever that Darlington wanted to go back home. Mm-hmm. I am not satisfied with the combination of like FDB and Carlos and Darren of replacing all of these guys. Like, I do not think the squad that we have now is a like-for-like replacement to the squad we had last season. And if they don't fix that, we know from our first season in existence, you will not win MLS Cup doing that. Like, if you just decide we're going to let it ride without depth, like, and I know we're waiting on visas and all that stuff, but I just, I really think there still needs to be a couple more additions to this team. Otherwise, they're going to get to the end of it. They're going to give out a gas. Yeah, and I think that's why you can't really do you know, we, we've talked about the Motagua win and how great the team looked, but you can't really do a deep dive necessarily on what the tactics or whatever is going to be of this team because you kind of have to wait. Like Joseto, yeah. for example, like that's going to be a huge part, you would think, of this team going forward and, and sort of that ability to replace the production you were getting from a Nagby led midfield. So I think that you have to wait for those guys to come in. You have to wait for, you know, uh, you know, Joseto, Castro, um, just the players that have been brought. You got to wait for them to to come in and, and really be able to impact the team. So I think that you're right. Uh, I think that just sort of being like, well, we have enough good talent in our starting lineup to not really worry about the depth. Yeah, you're not going to win MLS Cup doing that. So a lot of this is a wait and see kind of thing. And one thing that scares the bejesus out of me is something that Josh thinks is a very big possibility is Barco being sold in the summer window. Mm. And, you know, if, if that does become a reality, then, um, you know, you would hope that Atlanta United would be able to bring in a suitable replacement or at least a somewhat suitable replacement in that same window, which is, uh, which is, I think easier to work with when, when you're scouting from European sides, it's much easier to make deals in the summer window than it is the January window. So if they're able to replicate that quickly, that'd be great. And and that's a big if too. They might not make that sale, but if if that money that they want, you know, that 25, 30 million offer comes in, it's going to be hard to turn that down. So I think there's a lot sort of, you know, wait and see kind of stuff that, that is yet to happen for the squad. But overall, you know, I, I think that from what we've seen so far, you know, Atlanta United is going to be a very dangerous attacking side that might have some hiccups defensively sometimes, but overall is going to be a team that's going to be able to possess and that's going to be able to control 
the majority of the opponents they face in this league. It's hard to watch Petey and Joseph combine like that last night and not be optimistic. Like, regard, I mean, if we even have like a cardboard cutout of like Michael Parkhurst at center back, like seeing that combination, there's some teams in MLS you can beat doing nothing but that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, it, look, I'll say this. If Frank, if we do sell Barco in the summer, which again, totally possible. That's why we, we have built the team to do stuff like this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we do that uh, and Frank keeps this thing on the rails and gets him in the playoffs and, you know, competes in, has a, you know, has competitiveness in U.S. Open Cup and gets him in, in, gets him to the playoffs, like has a good season or even a great season, uh, he's my manager at that point. And up until then, I kind of treat him the same way I just described LGP, you know? He's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Not saying he's great. He's not, you know, he's not incredible. He's good. Uh, I don't know what this is going to be, though, every time the the stuff hits the fan. But if right. you can show me through that kind of transition, that sort of like team entirely rearranged from the offseason to then the summer again and still keep it all on the rails, then I'm fine. You're, you're good to go. You're my you will replace in a way Tata Martino in my heart. All right. Before we wrap things up with host emeritus Jason Smith here on this episode of the Mouths of the South podcast, we got to talk about Nashville. And look, there's not a whole lot tactically to talk about here because this is an expansion side who have Walker Zimmerman and a bunch of people that you don't know. <laughs> Dax McCarty. You know Dax McCarty. Oh, okay. Okay. Dax. I'll give you Dax. I'll give you Dax. Dax is a veteran though. He's a guy who, you know, is, is closer to being on his last legs than his first legs uh, mm-hmm. in MLS. So this is a team that, you know, for, for what it's worth, I'm sure it's going to be a very fun first season for them. Nashville, as you well know, great town, great. It's very similar to Atlanta in a sense that you have a lot of college students graduating from SEC and ACC schools. Where are these big hubs that they end up going to for, for out of college jobs? Atlanta, Charlotte, Nashville. So you've got a very similar demographic that, that you're kind of, I guess, uh, trying to talk to here or trying to reach out to here in terms of, you know, getting these season ticket holders and having your stadium packed out. But at the same time, I don't think Nashville, at least from what I've seen, they haven't really hit the ground running in terms of, you know, promoting themselves in terms of being that, that squad that wants to, to shout from the rooftops, Hey, we're here. And, and we, we mean business. Because they haven't run themselves the same way as Atlanta United. I think Atlanta United knew from the roster that they had built that they were going to be competitive right up from the jump. That's not the case with Nashville. And quite frankly, they've had distractions in terms of like the stadium and in terms of the mayor uh, basically pulling out of, of the initial agreement or whatever because it wasn't like right for the taxpayers. And bravo for him because Nashville SC, they balked. They panicked. You know, they were like, Oh crap, this guy means business. And what did they do? Nashville FC ponied up the cash. So, you know, good for the mayor to uh for once to stand up to one of these sports teams and be like, "No, we're not doing this the way you guys want to do it." And 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 helping out his citizens and and citizens that that don't give the one crap or don't care one iota about soccer, you know, they don't want to have to pay for this. So, uh, not to go off on a political tirade here, but uh, ultimately they have had that to worry about, and I think that's distracted a lot from getting ready for the on-field product, at least in terms from from a publicity and like fan engagement standpoint. 
See, I actually take the opposite uh, opinion on this, not on the the stadium thing. I don't think taxpayers should pay for stadiums. You, should, you know, if you're rich people, you should pay your own daggum stadium. Um, although I will say, I think that uh, w- this is a weird one in that, like, it wasn't as if Nashville came in and the ownership group was like, the taxpayers are going to be entirely on the hook for this if the team goes belly up and you have to pay the debt on the stadium. They actually had a really, really, like, way more generous clause in there that the mayor just said i want i forget what the figures were but he's like i want a little more or something um or even that or it it could have been that there was there was already in the deal i don't remember but that the whole thing to remember with that is that anytime anybody wants to build anything on the nashville fairgrounds those grounds i'm convinced are cursed or like we buried hoffa there or something because it is absolute chaos i've been hearing since 2009 when i moved to nashville I heard on sports radio almost every year a story about somebody wanting to do something with the fairgrounds that generated mass protests from the Chamber of Commerce and like all of these different political machinations to do anything at all to that fairgrounds area. Um, it's, it, it is always a cluster you-know-what um, if you're trying to do something there. The, I, so here's the opposite take I have, though. I think this the mayor pulling that really weird um, – inexplicable almost okie doke on Nashville and being like, I'm about to kick you guys out of the city and you won't get your franchise actually helped Nashville more than anything else because they didn't have any way of getting publicity. Like the, the, the team just is not built to market them. And so the only thing that what it ended up, I think more people knew about Nashville SC because they were about to leave because the franchise was about to be taken away. You're absolutely yeah. right. They they up up until this point they have done a pretty horrendous job. Like Inter Inter Miami has had some negative publicity, but it feels like like if if you ask random people on the street, like hey, did you know that Nashville is starting in MLS this year? Versus hey, did you know that Miami is starting in MLS this year? Yeah, the, the vast majority of people would know Miami more so than Nashville, just because. They've been out there more. And because they have David Beckham, that doesn't hurt. (laughs) But yeah, Nashville's just done a a pretty horrendous job of of marketing themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And and that's one place where you kind of do go, you know, I talk about and my little my hobby horse is just it's not that hard to be good in MLS. Well, it is pretty hard to be good at marketing. Um, It's hard to build a connection with a city and with a fan culture um, and you take your hats off to Darren and company because they clearly did that better than whatever Nashville's doing right now. I, you know, I still hold out hope for my former city. I think that they will be engaged and like grow with the club. I think their club anthem is a silly, ridiculous indie worship anthem that ought to be playing in a non-denominational megachurch held in a warehouse yeah, somewhere. Yeah, Judah the Lion that did that thing? Yeah, and I mean, no offense to them as songwriters. I'm sure if I heard that as like, you know, one of these folk alternative jock jams, like a Mumford & Sons type thing, I'd be yeah. like, this is a pretty dope song, you know? This Hell is cool. Yeah. Hear it before a college football, you know, promo or something. But to have a season where you know you're going to get the crap beat out of you a whole lot as an mm-hmm. expansion side that hasn't cared to put together a particularly good roster um, and have a song that an anthem that is titled, you know, we'll never give up on you. Okay. That's kind of like one of those things of like, was there an option you were going to give up on me? Like, that's not I mean, they're ripping off. You'll never so. walk alone. First of all, I mean, I mean, let's just get that out of the way. I mean, just with that title, you can be like, oh, they're they're trying to rip Liverpool off, which which more power to them because a lot of teams do that, you know. I mean, I t- I said from the jump in Atlanta United, I was like, we should just have you never walk alone. We should just do that. We should just be the team that takes it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Dortmund has it, you know, like just take it. Yeah. Just it's our well, anthem too. It's funny because like Atlanta United did this correctly in a sense that. 
hey, don't force feed some song down your fans' throats before you've ever played a game. Like that, that I, ju- I just never wanted that to be the case. I, I think, you know, when you were still, you know, on this podcast every week, one thing we talked about a lot was, hey, don't, you know, just have some stupid generic mascot ready to go. And Atlanta United still doesn't have a mascot. Um, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, unless it organically happens, like it just feels forced and it feels crappy. And I think that's what this song kind of is. Like, it's like the the, the teams, it, it feels way more so, and Atlanta United's fan groups have done a great job with a lot of this stuff. It's like, let them be in charge of that. Like, Atlanta United themselves have done a great job supporting the supporters groups. Yeah. So, you know, there's got to be that give and take there. Don't just, you know... Go to you know don't don't hire some marketing agency that's like hey let's get some local Nashville band that everybody gets excited about which you know I I don't really you know I've heard of Jude of the Lion before but it's not like you know they're you know Billboard Smashers or anything certainly but not, no. yeah yeah I mean it's just one of these things where it just feels forced and and I hate that I I, I think things need, like that need to be organic yeah and I mean I think the the trouble is that I mean it seems like Nashville has good fan support like i think that sam jones was up there reporting on them they seem to be really engaging um building up you know I, and i can't i how how would i know you know like i'm not there um i'd assume you have a good perspective have, on like the the sports fans in that city i mean you live yeah, there for a long time so. right i mean i i think that they will certainly engage and have like they i think they will be a very similar fan culture to like what is happening in minnesota right now that like those people hung in and like the diehards kind of stayed with the team despite them being absolute dumpster juice. And then eventually they got pretty good. And now like there's a buzz around the team because you have this culture already there. My hope for Nashville is that that's what's happened. But like, I, I will just say, cause I know, you know, we're, we're approaching the closing here. I think that I, I hate everything about the way they built this team. Um, and I, I wish the team were better than it is for Nashville's sake. So, but we're going to have to test those supporters groups of like, how into this are you really? Because you're going to lose a lot. You know, I mean, I think maybe I'm totally wrong. Who knows? It's MLS, but I really do think you're going to lose a bunch because you're built to defend. And the only, the people you're relying to defend is Walker Zimmerman, a Romney and Dax McCartney, you know, like those are your, those are your dudes. Um, (laughs) And look, Nashville. I like how you said a Romney. Yeah, I I don't know which one it is. One of the billion Romneys. (laughs) But let me say this about Nashville as like an idea of this team, right? This team, to me, was almost the experiment I want somebody to run, which is you have a coach who like hates joy and scoring and good things about soccer, right? You, you Clint Smith, he just despises scoring. He's like a Jose Mourinho for our for our league, right? the only thing a guy wants to do is bunker and defend. Like that's his entire philosophy. It's like, okay, fine. That's actually a really cool philosophy for a young team. Because what you do is you tell your ownership group, you don't have to pony up a ton of money, but you can pony up designated player level salaries to go in and you can actually for your money, go buy like the best center back pairing in MLS. Probably Walker Zimmerman is a, is a very, you know, undervalued. He's best uh, 11 back. last season. That's what I'm saying. In a sense too, that that is going to, really hurt LAFC. I don't I still don't understand why they did that because they're a team that is built primarily on attack 
and their defense is mostly crap, which is why yeah. they didn't end up in MLS Cup last year. Yeah, you're going to learn the Manchester City lesson, which is that you can't defend with, like, cardboard cutouts at your center backs. you got to have somebody who can actually play. It's what Liverpool did for forever. They were like, well, we can just suck at defense, and it'll be fine. It was not fine, let me tell you. How dare I, you smirch Sammy Herpia like that? I know, right? I, like, and I, you know, he, was, he was fine. I'm saying, like, I lived through the days when it was, like, you know, Dan Lovren and, so, like, the ghost of Martin Skirtle uh, back there. And it's not pleasant, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but, but what I'm here's what I want to say though. Like you, there some at some point in this experiment, as Inter Miami finds its car keys and gets all its really good South American talent in there, as like new expansion sides come in and try to copy the Atlanta model and go get young, inexpensive attacking talent and just say we don't believe MLS defenses are that good. We can beat you attacking. Somebody is eventually going to try, and it's going to be cheaper when they try it to say all three of our designated players are going to be defenders and we will have the best defense in MLS immediately. Like from the jump, we will be better than every pairing you've got out there. That's very possible given the right ownership group and a median commitment to spend money. If you do that and then say, all right, if you guys think that what you're going to do is go out and beat all these terrible MLS defenses, like five to nothing, what's going to happen is you're going to come play us and the score is either going to be, it's either going to be a nil, nil draw, or we're going to beat you one nil. If you could do that, you would be everybody's nightmare. You know, they'd hate you. None of the fans would like watching your games, but you could compete extremely early for trophies in a way that most sides that don't have an owner as ambitious as Arthur Blank can't compete. Um, I thought Nashville was going to do that. And instead, they like traded for Walker Zimmerman, are going to play like Gondoy and Dax McCarty in midfield. They've got a guy who's like a, you know, they've got a 24 year old guy who played in the Bundesliga for a while, but he was from the Danish league now. So, you know, he petered out a bit Now he might, he might kill us. Who knows? But, you know, I just, I was hopeful that at least Nashville was going to try something. And it seems like what they've tried is just to be a little bit better than Cincinnati. And that's not saying much. Yeah. And I mean, when you've got David Beckham going on Fallon being like, yeah, we'd love to bring in Cristiano and Leo Messi into this squad, you know, I mean, yeah, right. one of those things. the ambition Which, I mean, of know, Miami I, versus the ambition of, uh, of Nashville is a little different. Sure. I think that's more like the marketing of Miami versus the marketing of Nashville. Cause like, well, you've got to do that in Miami. Like, yeah. I mean, you've now, got I'll tell you what he will do. I think eventually in Miami, you will see Edison Cavani play for that team. Like, I really think, I think that's you'll gonna... see Leo Messi play there. Like, like give it like four or five years. But yeah, but the, yeah. like the and and look, the ghost of Leo, like the forty-year-old Lionel Messi, would still probably beat everybody in MLS pretty handily. Absolutely. I would think. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> it's gonna be great. I mean, it's gonna be great seeing how they you know build themselves. But Nashville, yeah, it's it's a slow drip. You guys. Can we also talk about how disrespectful it is that Frank DeBoer left in every starter for like 85 minutes last night or Tuesday oh, night, knowing so. that yeah. he has he, this he knows, game? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, look, and before before we go, uh, look, Atlanta United, if they don't win this game by three goals, uh, it's a disappointment. You know, I, and, and I hate to, I, to be like that I because that soccer far. is hard. I, but, well, yeah. soccer is hard. It's hard to score goals. You know, hot take. I mean, but yeah, but I you still think, think like United the, are the way better team. Sure. I mean, it's the first game of the season. Like, they're going to be so hyped up. And this, again, It'll this depends good. on, like, what the fan ratio is going to be because we don't know that yet. Um, you know, I, I think I would suspect Nashville is going to, like, really try because you want to be the, like, you have a chance to be the first goal scorer for a franchise. You know, like, I mean, it's. Yeah, you have energy. a chance to beat Nashville's Yamil Assad. Exactly. Like, the energy that we had in that match, I think, you know, we still lost that match, if we recall. But, like, you know, yes, that it's palpable. You're you and I tried to team. do a really weird post-game show where I was we sitting did. in the Bobby Dodd press box. It did not work. Um, 
so like I, you know i think that i i would i would not count them out and i would think it'd be a closer game than you might think especially given that everybody's coming off a short rest um but you know an opportunity for some of the for some of these guys that are depth guys on our squad list to prove that maybe they are like for like replacements to some of the guys that we you know don't believe they're like for like replacements of yet all right guys before we go remember lucid fc an official sponsor of the mouths of the south podcast lucid fc fc stands for footwear and clothing we're gonna have to get smith one of these uh lucid fc hats as a as a host emeritus yeah no question about that but one thing i did want to mention there in my mind's eye collection, the spring summer 2020 collection. The palette is in the realms of warm, bright, muted hues, merely intimidating, or excuse me, I, I can't read, uh, merely intimating the actual thoughts and colors we see in our third eye vision. Textiles such as Japanese denim, English Oxford shirting fabric, and Italian terrace poplin develop the soft, muted feels and tones expressed throughout the collection. And again, if you go to lucidfc.us and use promo code MOTS, you can get free shipping. So be sure to do that. Jason, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, go now and collect Baby is a Smith uh, from uh, daycare, or uh, I would assume it's daycare at this point, oh, right? Yeah. Yep, still daycare. We're getting close. You know, she's like three and a half now, so time is flying by. No doubt about that. All right, Jason, thank you so much, and we will be talking to you down the pipe, I am sure. This is Sam Franco, and this has been the Mouse of the South podcast right here on DirtySouthSoccer.com. Follow us on Twitter at MOTS Podcast. I'm at Sam J. Franco. If you want to follow Smith and his unique sports takes, at Jason is a Smith on Twitter. Smith, thank you so much, man. We'll do it again real soon. Yeah, man.